Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, everyone. Vicki Vasilega here. Thanks for listening in to today's COVID-19 podcast. Today's feature podcast is from a COVID-19 webinar recorded earlier that you may have missed or may want to hear again. So let's listen in as our content matter experts share their experiences and recommendations for optimal patient care and operational strategies. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcasts. I will now turn the presentation over to Dr. Salisbury Afshar. Hi, thanks so much, Anna and ASHP for hosting this webinar today. The goal of my presentation is just to talk a little bit about sort of the environment right now, particularly risk factors for people who use drugs and opioids specifically, and then offer some sort of guidance for pharmacists working in clinical settings who might be encountering patients with opioid use disorder. So I always just like to start by taking a couple steps back and um, thinking about, you know, obviously this is a very stressful time um, with regard to COVID um, and physical distancing and the many um, stressors that all of us have uh, right now. But I think specifically for people who use drugs, there are a few factors to consider that may be putting people at increased risk. So first is that many people who use drugs may be living in communal environments. Um, So this could include homeless shelters, single room occupancies. People who use particularly illicit drugs are are more likely to um, have experienced incarceration. So uh, may have been in jail. They may have been in residential treatment programs. And we know um, nationally that there have been outbreaks, COVID outbreaks in each of these settings. So anytime someone's in this sort of community living environment, going to put them at increased risk for for contracting COVID. We also know that many people with substance use disorders have high rates of comorbidities, such as COPD, cirrhosis, which may be related to hep C infection or HIV. Um, And each of these can increase the severity of COVID if they are to be exposed. Finally, you know, we've seen, unfortunately, that many jurisdictions around the country are seeing increasing rates of opioid-related overdose right now. And although there are a variety of factors that could be contributing, there are concerns that it could be because people are trying to follow physical distancing guidelines, um, which may mean that they're more likely to be using drugs alone. And obviously, if someone overdoses and they're there alone, as opposed to with other people, they're at higher risk of dying from overdose since there's no one there to be able to respond appropriately. Additionally, if someone is exposed to COVID um, and is practicing either quarantine or is uh, isolated, this can sort of pose new problems for people. So, um, you know, I've been working with folks who are in an alternate care site, so people who are otherwise unsheltered, who are um, positive for COVID, um, don't meet hospital criteria, and then are really sort of offered the opportunity to go to this alternate care site, but once they're there, they're not allowed to leave. Um, And so if someone who's there and has opioid use disorder isn't able to access opioids, this can put them in a really tough situation in that they could be experiencing definitely uncomfortable, sometimes dangerous opioid withdrawal symptoms, um, and really sort of putting people in a position where they have to decide between um, isolation versus, you know, leaving to be able to to get opioids to, to treat their withdrawal symptoms. If people, again, are isolated or in quarantine, it may make it harder for them to access harm reduction programming or to receive uh, substance uh, 
drug consumption supplies, things like syringes or cookers, and the reuse of that equipment can increase risk for a variety of infectious conditions. Because of COVID and just a variety of changes in drug markets and availability of, of drugs, people may be more likely to obtain drugs from new sources, which can sort of pose additional risk factors as it relates to people just not being sure of exactly what drug they're getting. And finally, as mentioned on the previous slide, people may be more likely to use a loan, particularly in situations of isolation and quarantine, which again means that no one would be there to respond in the case of an overdose. The final thing to consider, and I think this is particularly important as we think about discharge planning, is just that many, many social services have been reduced or limited in many regions of the country. And this comes in a few different ways. So one is addiction treatment services, particularly earlier in COVID, a lot of residential programs uh, actually really significantly limited their services in an attempt to make sure that they were able to meet physical distancing requirements. So people often uh, were having a harder time getting into residential treatment services. Additionally, many outpatient-based treatment services moved to telehealth. Um, which, you know, definitely from the physical distancing um, infection disease sort of perspective is, is the right move. It's been challenging for many patients, especially patients who don't have access to the telephone or regular access to the internet, to try to receive services in this way. So I think, you know, it's often leaving the folks with the least resources behind with regard to being able to access treatment. Also, we've seen in many jurisdictions around the country that harm reduction services have had to limit uh, limit sort of hours of the day, limit the number of people that they can serve, again, to be able to support physical distancing and protect both their clients and their staff. So in many places, this could mean that people have less access to syringes, less access to naloxone. Um, so these are important things for us to be thinking about as we're, again, working on discharge planning and, and letting patients know about resources. And finally, for many patients with uh, opioid use disorders, there could be a variety of social services that are no longer available or not available in the same way. So this could include homeless shelters, drop-in centers, um, food pantries. I didn't list here, but all kinds of peer support meetings, you know, and, and so I think many um, where services can, they're often moving to telehealth or tele-delivery um, of services. Uh, but again, people without regular access to phone and internet are often left behind. And then in terms of physical spaces that people can safely be, um, we're seeing sort of less and less access to those in, in many jurisdictions across the country. So as you are encountering people with opioid use disorder in clinical settings, I think there are a variety of factors to consider. I've just listed two here for the sake of time today um, that we should always be thinking about when we're working with patients. So the first is, is the patient interested in opioid use disorder treatment? Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about treatment options and, and then specifically what to be considering during COVID. And then the second is, does the patient have access to harm reduction education and services? Um, and again, specifically, what should we be considering during COVID? So as, with regard to opioid use disorder treatment, just at a very high level, I, I'm sure many of you are familiar, um, but there are three medications that are FDA approved to treat opioid use disorder. And we know that there are better outcomes for patients who use a medication as part of their opioid use disorder treatment as compared to patients who either get no treatment or patients who receive only behavioral counseling treatment, so treatment without medication. So it's important to work with your clinical team uh, to understand and to know what the treatment options are that are available in your community, and then really important to understand sort of are those 
sort of options still available right now, even with all of the COVID restrictions, or what are the new service sort of uh, types, or how can people receive those services during COVID? And finally, I think it's really important that we discuss all available treatment options with our patients, make sure that they have some basic understanding of the evidence base, and really support them in making the decision that's right for them. This is what we do with every other medical condition, um, that we let people know sort of what the evidence base is and, and help them to choose the, the treatment option that makes the most sense for themselves. So again, just at a very high level, I wanted to share in case people aren't um, overly familiar with uh, opioid use disorder treatment options, there are three FDA-approved medications, buprenorphine, methadone, and extended-release naltrexone. We know that as compared to treatment without medication, all three of these meds increase retention in treatment and reduce illicit opioid use. Um, and buprenorphine and methadone specifically also um, have been shown to reduce risk of overdose death, reduce all-cause mortality, and reduce HIV risk behaviors. And so as we're talking to patients about treatment options, it's really critical that they have an understanding that, that these medications um, are evidence-based. And I think important to recognize that in many circles, there's still a lot of stigma against the use of medication. And so really, again, helping patients to be able to have this information to make the right choice for themselves. So the parts that are really specific to, to COVID and to the national emergency that I wanted to bring up are that um, because of all of the physical distancing recommendations, um, there have been a few regulatory changes that have increased access uh, during COVID. And so um, I, I can't really say how important this is, but it is really important to, to note that Right now, these regulatory changes are only for the duration of the public health emergencies, so it's not clear at this time whether or not these will uh, stay in place post public health emergency declaration. So it will be important to continue to monitor SAMHSA and DEA websites to find out whether or not these stay in place. But for right now, these are the guidelines that we're working under. So first, buprenorphine is now able to be initiated using telehealth. And initially, the guidance that came out specified audiovisual platforms, but then in March, uh, March 31st, um, additional guidance came out saying that a landline or cellular um, call was an acceptable form uh, to be able to initiate or maintain treatment with buprenorphine. We also have additional guidance expanding the telehealth platforms that can be used to deliver um, deliver treatment services. And this is particularly helpful for health systems that may not have had telehealth platforms prior to COVID. So it gave folks an option to be able to use some of these services that are free or pretty low cost to at least be able to get things up and running. Um, I do want to note that methadone does still require an in-person physical exam for initiation of treatment, but there are some additional allowances to um, allow for people to get more doses of methadone sort of earlier than they would have been able to sort of prior to the public health emergency. So clinically, what does this mean? So prior to the declaration of this uh, public health emergency, we would have had to seen a patient in person um, and conducted an in-person physical exam to be able to initiate buprenorphine. And so now because of uh, these regulatory changes, we are able to conduct a phone visit or a telemedicine visit um, and actually initiate and, and then continue that prescription you know, without the in-person visit. So 
I've seen this um, be really clinically useful in a variety of settings. So um, definitely sort of I've heard of street outreach teams identifying folks who are going through withdrawal and interested in initiating treatment. And um, we've been able to actually do a telephone or like a, you know, a telemedicine visit right then and there and send a prescription to a pharmacy. I've heard of even hospitals um, initiating the medication while patients are on the inpatient unit, um, but maybe they don't have a wavered prescriber to be able to write that prescription. And so they can actually conduct a telemedicine visit right there with the patient in the hospital, the provider in the community, but as a way to be able to ensure that people have access to maintenance treatment and without you know, exposing people unnecessarily. Similarly, some um, folks who are staying in shelters or alternate care sites who are going through withdrawal, need access to medication, and again, utilizing this telehealth option. So again, this is all new and specific to the public health emergency, but um, offering some really great options for new partnerships and treatment pathways. I next wanted to just talk about harm reduction services. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I think it's really important to note uh, that some, but not all patients will be interested in treatment services. And regardless of whether someone's interested in opioid use disorder treatment, if we know that they are at risk, if we know that they're using opioids or if they're at risk for overdose, it's really important that everyone receives harm reduction education, that everyone knows about and has access to naloxone. And if people are injecting drugs, that they know about where and how to obtain syringe services. So uh, really critical to understand sort of what's available locally in your community. Um, and again, understand what's, what's going on now with COVID and, and what those services look like. Um, at this point, I would imagine many people are familiar with um, naloxone, the, the opioid overdose antidote. Historically, it was primarily used in hospital and emergency room settings. And really just over the last few years, uh, guidance has come out from the federal government, from the CDC, from the Surgeon General, um, really with a wide recognition that this is a really safe medication. We should be thinking of it how we think of EpiPens. If someone's at risk for overdose or if someone knows someone at risk for overdose, we should be getting naloxone into their hands. Um, and so I've just included some of the CDC guidelines on who should receive naloxone and a statement from the Surgeon General here. Um, but again, this is really um, standard of care at this point. So the one challenge in this space, particularly when giving a national webinar, is that naloxone regulation varies by state. And so if people haven't used this website before, um, it's a great resource because it looks state by state, what are the regulations around naloxone dispensing and, and prescribing? Increasingly, many states allow third-party prescribing, meaning that uh, if I'm seeing a patient whose son uses heroin, I am able to write a prescription in her name, um, recognizing that she would potentially use it on her son, not on herself. Um, increasingly, states are um, allowing pharmacists to dispense via standing order. And so this, again, is if you're not familiar with what's allowed in your state, this is a great resource. Um, I will just add, so I've practiced in Illinois. Um, Illinois does have this pharmacist allowance um, to dispense via standing order, but we found locally that a lot of pharmacists actually don't feel comfortable doing it or aren't doing it. Um, similarly, many pharmacies aren't regularly stocking naloxone. So in addition to knowing what's happening locally, I would also recommend just finding out whether the pharmacies that are closest to your clinical locations are actually utilizing any regulation that's in place. So that way you can advise patients on where they can go to get naloxone. Similarly, uh, you know, we've seen that um, 
during COVID in particular, um, many community-based distribution programs have had to limit hours. And so if your standard is to recommend people to go to your local harm reduction agency, it will be important to just know whether um, availability and access has changed during COVID. And finally, um, I think that prescribing naloxone isn't, is sort of the, the lowest bar we should all be aiming for. So we definitely want to make sure that any patient who could be at risk for overdose gets a naloxone prescription. But when possible, we really want to make sure that patients are leaving the emergency department, the hospital, or the clinic with naloxone in hand. Um, and I included just a little bit of data here from a a study at Cook County Hospital where they looked at 55 unique individuals who had survived overdose. They all left the emergency department with a prescription for naloxone. At this hospital, the pharmacy is literally just down the hall from the emergency department, and they found that only 25% of the patients took the prescription to the pharmacy and only 18% received the medicine. So for us, what this tells us is that we really need to do everything we can, not just to give people a prescription, but to make sure they leave with a naloxone kit in their hands. And finally, um, this is a great resource. I just wanted to share it. So again, recognizing that not everyone um, will be interested in treatment. Most people will continue to use substances uh, for at least some time or intermittently. Um, and so it's really important that we also advise patients on safer drug use. Um, and this is a great resource from the Harm Reduction Coalition. It's publicly available at the link shown here, and it goes through sort of some guidance around uh, trying to minimize risk for COVID, but also minimize risk for overdose, and uh, again, is publicly available and a great resource that you and your teams can use to share with patients. And I believe that, oh, these are the links to the regulatory references. There were so many, I couldn't fit them on the slide, so I wanted, but I wanted people to have them. And uh, that is my last slide. I look forward to my co-panelists and answering any questions. Thank you for listening in today. For more information, please be sure to check out the ASHP COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.